tough message today, and I am, uh, I've been kind of avoiding it, if I'm honest. Um, if you haven't spent any time or, or much time in the book of Hosea, which is where we're going to be today, um, you're about to find out how, I guess, awkward it gets at times. Um, I actually, God, uh, God, God put this passage in my heart a couple weeks ago, actually through a friend's uh, song, and I, I started kind of digging into Hosea, and then Tom told me that, you know, this day was coming up and asked me if I knew what I was preaching. I kind of felt like I knew and had a couple friends here ask me, and, and I said, yeah. I kind of got with a friend that I trust. I said, I, honestly, I've never been scared to preach a specific sermon, sermon before, and, and in the past, I've never really been afraid to say certain words or or call people to a certain level, but this is honestly kind of pushing me to my limit, and I don't quite know why this is different, but it is. And, uh, and I said, I'm going to talk about Hosea, and if you don't know the story of Hosea, it's about God calling a man to marry a whore. And uh, he goes, whoa, now I know what you're talking about, okay. Um, like, I know why that would seem awkward. And uh, I said, yeah. He said, well, if you get up there and you preach some sugar stick message about how you should love Jesus and have the joy of Christ and all this stuff, I'm just going to stand up in the middle of the sermon and ask, what about the horse? <laughs> and I said, don't do that. I will, I will do what I have to. Um, seriously, I, um, I kind of ran from God on this one for a little while, and he brought me back, so, which is interesting because it's a little bit of a picture of, of Hosea. Um, Hosea... Uh, also shows us how, and it reminds us how, our marriages um, today are pictures um, specifically, and I really believe this is one of the primary purposes for our marriages today here on earth, is that they show us a picture of what our relationship with Jesus should look like or could look like. Um, the, uh, the selfishness versus the selflessness uh, battle that you have to, to kind of work through. Um, I always talk to the students about how you don't know how hard marriage is until you start. Like, it's all romance, and there's a bunch of feelings, and it's the butterflies and the dates and, and, and you know, all this kind of stuff. And then you get married, and, and it's not that all that goes away. You just realize that there's service every day, and there's humility every day that is required for a marriage to thrive. And, um, and that's why I think a lot of our marriages, I don't mean to harp on the overused statistic, but our marriages are failing in the church and outside of the church. Um, it's sad that apparently uh, the church isn't making a dent on that statistic. We just look exactly like the world in that, in that way. And at 30 years old, um, I have the opportunity um, to walk several of my friends through that situation. And I don't, I don't like it. I don't love it. But I have friends that have been unfaithful. I have friends that have... Um, left their families and cheated on their wives and things like that. And I've had to walk through that. And uh, what's interesting is that I've found is that in the same way that marriage can be a beautiful picture of our relationship with Jesus, it can also show us how we've turned our back on Jesus over time and how he, as the perfect husband, the perfect father, the perfect God, all these different pictures, he shows us consistently what true humility and true service looks like. 
and, um, and it's difficult. And so if you haven't read the story of Hosea, we're going we're gonna to dive in um, in chapter 1, verse 1. And if you want to stand with me, we're just going to read three verses, and then we'll kind of get into the rest of the, the book. Verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. I'm going to pray real quick. Father, thank you for, for this story. It's, it's hard. It's difficult. It, it unnerves some of us. It unnerves me. Um, God, this story speaks so closely to our hearts and how, um, how devoted we are or how not devoted we are. So God, I just ask that you would just be here with us in this moment as you've promised. And I pray that these, these words and the, this message that you have for us, Lord, the heart um, that is breaking in your chest w- would become evident to us, Lord, that we would be connected to that today, that we would hear your word speak deep into our hearts. Um, God, that you would, um, you would let us leave changed um, because of what we've seen here today um, in your word. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. Now have a seat. Um, Hosea was one of the minor prophets, um, one of the earlier ones, and, uh, and he's not a minor prophet because, you know, his message wasn't important. This message is one of the stronger messages in, in any of the prophets, but it's just a shorter book in the, in the Old Testament. And sometimes we shy away from these things, you know, maybe because we just maybe churches don't push us that way or, or, or the names we don't really understand and the stories are kind of harsh. Um, a lot of times, I have a lot of friends and, 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 and students even that, that can't deal with the apparent contradiction between the, the anger of the Old Testament God and the, the grace of the New Testament God. Um, and there's plenty of people that, that would see that as a, uh, as, as a contradiction. And it's not. It's not. It's, just, it's a dichotomy of the same person. There's equal holiness um, as well as there is love. And there's equal wrath and justice as there is grace. Um, there is, and if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know what it's like to take advantage of grace, to burn it up. Um, to, uh, if you know what it's like to be a Christian as a teenager, um, you know, like this is the thought I had as a teenager was, God is a forgiving God, so obviously I can do whatever I want to and I'll be forgiven, right? The end of the day is coming, I can ask forgiveness, we're good. And, uh, and Romans 6 would tell us different, that that is, a, that is not the Christian life, that you died to sin, and how then can you live in it? And so um, this, is, this is a tough passage, though, because what God is asking Hosea to do is to marry a woman whom he knows will hurt him and will wreck him. In fact, at this point, several of the Proverbs have been written. The Old Testament, all of that is there. And so, so echoes of, of Proverbs 5 where, where there's, a, there's an admonition to, to not um, go to that woman, that, that the adulteress, her, her lips drip with honey, but her feet go down to Sheol or to hell. 
um, that she'll take you down with her and that, that there's destruction for those people and, and that, that it, is, it is not wise to, to walk into her house. And, and here God is asking Hosea to do something seemingly, um, seemingly unscriptural. But what he is doing here is he's saying, I want you to be the illustration. I don't want you to do the illustration. I don't want you to tell a story and say, what if a man married a prostitute? This is, this is like strong right here. Because I'm also seeing the picture here of the guy who gets into ministry because he's excited. He sees all these pastors that get to preach and you get to study the Bible all week. How cool would he get to help people and you get to baptize people? And, you know, it's awesome, right? And, and so you got this guy that doesn't, doesn't know how much work is associated with ministry. And, and, and God calls him into ministry. He's like, you are going to show the people of Israel how unfaithful they are. Oh, okay, all right, what story do you want me to tell? I mean, is there an illustration like rocks or throw seeds out and some of them don't take? Or, or do you want me to, to, to pull some children in? Children help tell the story. No, no, I want you to marry a prostitute. And I want you not just to marry her. This is not like a civil agreement. I want you to love her. And I want you to chase her. I want you to pursue her. When she leaves, I want you to go after her. Basically, what God is saying is, I want you to show the children of Israel what it's like to marry an unfaithful woman, because that is what's happened to me. The children of Israel have turned their backs on me repeatedly. And if you read the Old Testament, you know that the Old Testament is, is filled with this stuff. You have, you have the people, the Israelites in captivity. You have the Israelites in, in slavery. They get out of slavery and they're excited, and there's these monuments, there's stones in the river, and they're standing there having a worship service. And then days later, when they're having to eat this nasty bread, it's like, well, I wish I was in slavery, because at least I got to eat good back there. And you're like, what? And we look, we look back as if that's not us. And the scary thought is, is that the times that Hosea was prophesying were much like today, in a sense that there is prosperity and there is uh, health, and there's wealth, and um, in a big way, they don't feel like they need God. Sounds a lot like today. Feels a lot like what I know I've felt in the past. So you have to ask yourself, God says, go marry a prostitute. If you're Hosea, what are you thinking? Okay, I'm going to take a step back and maybe not be so committed. Can I just go to church and let someone else be the illustration? Can, is that an opportunity? No? Okay. Like, have to marry her. T today, can I psych myself up for this and not yet? Just, no? No. What are the people of Israel, Israel thinking? Because if you're watching this, what are they thinking? I'll, I'll tell you what I think they're thinking. I think a lot of them, because if you read the Bible, you see that God's messages don't always sink in immediately, right? And we're the same way. I'm sure a lot of them are like, did you hear about that prophet? He married a prostitute. Prophet, right? Prophet of God. And then there's some people that are like, well, that's kind of odd. I wonder why he, I guess he's not really, you know, whatever. 
I'm sure some people are catching on. I'm sure that, that the, the message is there. And, and the way Hosea is laid out, the first three chapters are kind of the story, and then the last several chapters are, are like the, the specific prophecies. And so we're going to stay in the first three chapters, but I would encourage you to go read the rest of Hosea this week um, to see those prophecies. They are applicable to us today. And, uh, and so I'm just thinking. But, but my last question is this, is, is how, how do you respond when you think of God relentlessly pursuing a group of people through this picture of Hosea and Gomer, relentlessly pursuing even you in your darkest hour of unfaithfulness. In that moment where you're just like, I don't care what God wants, I just want this right now. Or, or maybe you're like the, I know I'm a Christian, I just, man, I, I deserve this. I deserve this one, just this one little sin over here. I mean, no one will know about it. And there's this moment where you turn your back as if you were laying in bed next to your, your husband or your wife and you just thought, I just this, she, she's sleeping, she'll never know. She'll never know. As if we're pulling one over on God. As if that doesn't hurt the relationship between us and God. Right? I'll just do it just this one time and then we'll move. I'll go to church. I'll, I'll give a little extra. I'll, I'll go to the altar. I'll ask forgiveness. I'll ask forgiveness, right? Because he's a forgiving God. The picture of Hosea is a tough one. Um, moving even further into uh, verse 4, it says, The Lord said to him, okay, so there's these kids that come along in verse 3. We see that he bore a son. And if you pay very close attention, you know that the son, you see, you see this is Hosea's boy. But the next two, the daughter and then the son after this, are not necessarily his. You just see that she conceived and she bore a son. And so the, the idea here is not that um, these are all his kids. In fact, there's some debate about this among the scholars. My guess and, and just my hunch is that these, she, he married a harlot. He married a prostitute. These are not, these are not his kids. And he's, he's going to have to pursue her after she's been unfaithful. I imagine this is one of those cases where she brought the pregnancy test back home and said, it's not yours. It's not yours. Um, call his name. Jezreel, this is the first sign in verse 4. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And all this is is a reference to the unfaithfulness of Israel again. This, um, this command that got taken way over, over the level of what it was supposed to, and there was just ugly bloodshed. And, and, and God is asking Hosea to name his firstborn son, his son, his blood son, after an unfaithful moment in Israel's time. In fact, Jezreel is really just kind of a, a spin off of Israel. Israel would be God saves, and, and Jezreel is God scatters. Um, and so, to name your son, every morning you wake him up, and on your lips is a reference to Israel's unfaithfulness. But that's not it. It gets my mind worse. Verse 6, she conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, or Lo Ruhamah. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or horsemen. Verse 8, she weaned no mercy, Lo, Ruhama, and then she conceived and bore another son, uh, 
call his name not my people, Lo Ami. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. And this is one of those moments, right, where, where your atheistic, your agnostic friends are like, see, where's, all, where's the New Testament? God sent his son, right? And God loves you and rich in mercy and all this kind of stuff. And not my people and no mercy and, and, and name him Jezreel. There's, there has to be a moment, folks, where we understand that the justice of God is well-deserved in our life. By the way, if God had justice in its truest form, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be. The fact that you woke up this morning is an act of grace. Calling out for justice or what we deserve is calling to send us to hell. It's, it's just, it's mind-boggling that we would look at God, shake our fist at him and say, see, how stupid that you would name, name kids that. How sad that, no. No, the wrath and the justice of God are righteous and they are deserved. And the fact that we don't have them in their fullest extent is nothing but grace. And that alone should send us to our knees this morning. And if you stop there, you're going to miss verse 10 anyway. Yet the number of children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea in which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, I shall, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. See, there's this, there's this mixture of anger and, like, justice and restoration and love, and there's just kind of this, this all one muddled, you know, it's perfect, but it's this kind of, I'm angry, but I love you, and I'm going to chase after you, but, but please don't sin, right? Don't, don't go after other things in life to, to give you um, satisfaction. And so you've got this plea and I believe it's to us today, written specifically to Israel, but to us today. Not just to be faithful to our spouses, although that is true. This is not a passage primarily about what you do with your husband or wife. This is about your relationship with God. This is about idolatry. This is about the things that bring you satisfaction in this life. This is about who we trust with our life and whose word is the final word, and whose law is the final law. And that if we live by our own law, if we live by our own word, that is idolatry, and we've turned our back on God when he has given us grace enough to wake up this morning, not only that, but to send his son to pay the penalty for our sins. And I don't think, before I get into this, I don't think that we're far off from this. I don't think we're far off from this. I don't think our churches are far off from this. You know why? Because I know I'm not far from this. The comforting thing about being able to share this message with you is that I know that our church doesn't, um, doesn't have this misconception that we have it all together. Um, if you're new here, you'll find comfort in that. We're not trying to act like we have it all together. And if you are, then give it a rest. You don't. Um. What's comforting about being on this stage is that I'm not saying I have it all together, that I'm never unfaithful to God. It's just that we're a group of messed up, jacked up people, and we're pointing to the same God and saying he's the one who saves. I can't save myself. I've tried. I can't. And he's the only one worthy of it. And not only is he, he the only one worthy of it, 
is there's an equal amount of love. Like, he didn't have to be loving. He didn't have to be gracious. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. But his motivation is love toward us, and this is, is the call for us to return to him. So that's actually my first, my first point. The story shows us that, that God desperately wants us to return to him. He wants us to return to him. In, um, in Hosea chapter 2, uh, verses 14 to 23, there's this, um, there's this manifesto of, of these things, these commitments that God is going to make. And, uh, and this is kind of like, you could put him in a movie like on a mountaintop, you know, waving a flag in front of an army, kind of a William Wallace moment, you know, like this is like a, a beautiful, beautiful moment because what he's doing is he is saying to an unfaithful generation, I will blank. 10 times. He, there's these 10 I will statements that we're going we're gonna to kind of look through together. Starting in chapter 2, verse 14, he says, behold, I will allure her. Um, I don't think your Bible says this, but you might say, I will woo her. You know, as, as you're, as, you know, if you married people remember the dating relationship and the guy would come up with the flowers, he would, he would open the door. How many of you husbands still do that? You should. Sorry, I just got you in trouble. You should. You will woo her. You'll be nice to her parents. You'll bring her a, a card and chocolate. Just you know. And God, God, how much greater would God woo you? How much greater would He set things up so that He would be, um, you'd be drawn to Him? Not that He would force His love on you, but that He would allure you. He would show. He'd put stuff out there. Just say, I love you. I love you. Just I love you. Just come back. Stop chasing those things. I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. The next one, I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer in her day, as in the days of her youth, as the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. My Baal, by the way, is a reference to, obviously, um, false gods, um, but, but Baal specifically refers to the word husband. And so there's a play on words happening. And if you were looking at the old, old school language, yeah, you're going to see these two be different words, but they mean the, the same thing with just a slightly different um, specification. Baal, husband, would mean uh, like a, a, a master with negative intent or like a slave lord. Um, and this husband, it's ishi, means, means the loving husband, right? The providing husband, the, the wooing, the alluring husband. No longer will you call me by those false idols' name. No longer will I be named among those false idols. I am the only one. 17, he says, I will remove the bales from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. Next one, I will make, the, make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things on the ground. Notice how he makes a covenant, and he's a covenant-keeping God. He makes a covenant with a covenant-breaking group of people. Again, this is the quintessential go marry a prostitute who will break your heart, and I want you to pursue her even though she breaks her heart. Pursue her. Show them what it's like to be married to an unfaithful woman. I will remove the names of the bales. I will make for them a covenant. And then the next one, I will abolish the bow, the sword, the war from the land. I will make you lie down in safety. 
Ultimately, the best defense that we can have is not what we provide for ourselves, but God giving us defense in his power. The next one, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day, I will answer. There's the next one. I will answer. I will hear you. I will respond, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens. They shall answer the earth. The earth shall answer the grain, the wine, the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself. There's the next one. In the land. And then the last two are amazing. I will have mercy on no mercy. And to my people that I've called, not my people, I will call my people. And he shall say, you're my God. This restoring passage is a picture of how good this can be. This is the good news. The bad news is that we're an unfaithful generation. We're no better than Israel. We're no better than Israel because we turn our backs on God to pursue things that give us happiness, satisfaction, comfort, all those things. But the beauty is that God draws us to return to him And look at all those promises. And when God makes a promise, he keeps his promise. I will allure you. I will plant you in the vineyard. I will provide for you. I will give you safety. I will do all this stuff for you. Just come back. All I want. Do you hear it? Like, it's not like I need you back because of what you can do for me. I need you back because if you don't come back, then I don't get glory. None of that's true. His motivation is simply you. He wants you. Not what you can give him, not what you can bring to the table, not your money, not your stuff. God wants you. He is after your heart. So God desperately wants us to return to him. The second point um, is that this story shows us the potential for us to misuse God's gifts. The things that God has given us, the things that God has blessed us, you know, it's, it's kind of like when you get something for Christmas as a kid and you freak out like you're excited. This is the best day ever. And you get this cool thing. You, maybe you get a new car when you're turned 16. There's all these things. You get to go to a, the best college and all this. Kind of, and and it's, ultimately, it becomes mundane, doesn't it? Like, it's not a big deal. Right? That new car all of a sudden is showing some rust. And it's, it's old. And it's it's not this year anymore. It's three, four, five, six, seven years old. You know, it's not, it's just, you know, it's not a big deal. We do the same stuff with God. When, when James 1.17, that all good and perfect gifts come from the Father above, what we do, what we have a temptation to do is to take the stuff that he's given us, the money, the resources, the time, the people, the stewardship over all our stuff, and we use it for our own gain. And this is exactly what happened to Israel. Chapter 1, verse 8. Look with me here. It says, She did not know that it was I who gave her the grain and the wine and the oil and who lavished on her silver and gold. He's talking about Gomer, who is selling her body to make money to provide for herself when God is the one who gave her stuff in the first place. It gets much more difficult to read, which they used for Baal. Verse 9. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. I will take away my wool and my flax, 
which were to cover her nakedness. That verse dropped me to my knees this week. I will take away her clothing. I gave it to her to cover her up, cover herself up, and she took it off for selfish gain. Specifically, this is an ugly passage, okay? I'm not trying to dance around it here. She took her clothes off to earn money. Those clothes God gave her, and she took them off and put them aside so that she could earn money for herself. God was the one taking care of her. And what he's saying is that if you want to use the gifts that I have given you for a specific purpose, for your purposes, I'm going to take those gifts away in the first place. That's why it scares me, guys, that where we are, not, not in our nation. I can't speak to the nation. I'm going to speak to the church. I think that we are desperately close to getting things taken away from us because we've taken them for granted. We've used them for our own purposes. We are idols within these four walls, worshiping ourselves. And I think just what I'm afraid of, and this is what I'm afraid of for me, is that what God has given us, he will take away because he's not done teaching us lessons. He's not done giving us illustrations. He's not done alluring us. And sometimes alluring us is not flowers and candy. Sometimes alluring us and drawing us is tripping us up so that we realize, hey, we're not God, right? Like, I'm not the one who saves me. I'm not the one who provides for me. I'm not the one who takes care of me. So when I take what God has given me and use it for my own selfish gain, we are in danger of getting that stuff taken away. Worse off, our relationship with God is distant. Because it's not just about the stuff. I'm not after the stuff, right? That's where idolatry starts in the first place. When you're after God's stuff more than you're just after God's heart, that's where idolatry begins. Verse 10, I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, and her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. Verse 12, I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. Did you catch that? Like, I earned this. I did it. These are mine. No, no, they're God's. God's the one who provided that. God's the one who graciously gave that to you. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. If you can't take God's provisions seriously and with good intent, I'll give them to the animals, if you guys won't. Verse 13, I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with the ring and jewelry and went after the lovers, and then forgot me, declares the Lord. She forgot me. It's scary. So God desperately wants us to return to him. The story shows us the potential for us to misuse God's gifts, but also that it shows us the endless reach of God's love. This is the one that baffles our minds. This is the one that, that got here. God did not put this story in the Bible to show us how angry he was. That's not the primary purpose here. The primary purpose is to show how far his love reaches to us. And this is not given for us to, to abuse because, again, you abuse his grace and his love, you don't get it. I don't get it. If I just know I can ask for forgiveness, you don't get it. 
That's using, that's abusing, and that's not love in the first place. But God's love is all reaching to draw us back in. Verse, um, chapter 3, verse 1, this is kind of the end of the, of the story portion of, of the book. Verse 1 and 2 says, And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who was loved by another man. He's telling her, She cheated on you. Go after her. Go after Gomer. That is the woman that I have called you to marry and to love. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. You know what's interesting about that is that not only did he have to go get her back, not only did Hosea have to go win her back or to woo her back, he had to pay for her. He had to buy her back. He had to give something up. Half the price of a slave in Bible times was about that amount. And what's interesting about that is that you see the picture that he didn't even have enough money to buy her back. So he was just, what can I give you? What can I give you? Barley? Okay, okay, just take it. I want her back. I want her back. And you have to picture Gomer in this moment as he is sacrificing so that he could have his unfaithful wife home. And he is saying, I don't care. I just want her. I just want her. Take what I have. I just want Gomer. And this is the picture of God saying, take my son. He's on the cross. Look, he gave himself on the cross for you. Please stop turning to these idols who can give you or promise you nothing. They cannot love you. They cannot have the capacity of relationship. I do. I am the one who is after you. I'm the one who created you. I bless you. I rescued you from slavery. Stop running from me. I will show you how much I love you, even if I have to sacrifice my own son. Please come back. Please come back. The reach of God's love is so strong. Lastly, it shows us that his desire is for us to desire him. His desire is not merely that we would go to church, not merely that we would start reading the Bible, right? Because think about it this way. What, what if, um, what if uh, a homeless person comes up to you and asks for some money, and out of duty, you're like, oh, gosh, get out of my face. Is that, is that anything Christ-like? Like the attitude, the attitude. Okay, so you feel good that you gave him some money, but your attitude was poor? What's the point? What's the point? What if, what if Hosea goes after Gomer? He's like, oh, God told me, come on, go home. You know what I mean? Like, is it... Is that any better? Is that a beautiful picture? No, it's just a picture of have-tos and commitments on paper. God, God is after so much more than just your submission. He's not after you going to church. Yeah, you should do that. He's not after you doing all this good stuff for people. They, you should do that. He's after your heart. See, the picture of marriage gives us another good picture of our relationship with Jesus because it's not just a commitment, right? It's not just, it's not just the vows that you say on your wedding day. It's not just, just like a, a wedding license. It's, it's in your heart. Do you pursue him? Do you love him? Do you desire him? Do you want what he wants? Does, does your heart break for what breaks his heart? Do you want him or do you want his stuff, his salvation, right? Heaven and not hell. John Piper actually preached a, a sermon on Hosea back in 1982. And um, 
this, this phrase that I'm about to put on the screen for you is, is one that captured me because it tells the story of what, what, is, what is after here. He says, love God warmly as your husband. Don't just serve him dutifully as your master or as your Lord. You see, this doesn't minimize the fact that Jesus is Lord. He is Lord. He is master. He's going to get his way. But he's not after your, your submission or your actions or just, you know, you saying publicly, yeah, I love God. He saved me. So I guess I'm going to heaven. Because that's missing something, right? What if I say to my wife, yeah, you know, you're, you're kind of cool, I guess, you know. I just picked you. There was actually like 100 girls that I, and, you know, I just kind of I flipped a coin, so. Does that communicate any love to my wife, right? If I stand up here and I talk about her in such a way that she is just an appendage to me or my servant, does that communicate any love at all? But at the same time, God shows us love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You don't, you don't send your son to die if you don't have like devotion in your heart. And he's, he's saying, I don't want you to, to just do the duties. I want you to love me. That's it. I want you to love me. And out of that love comes the fruit. Like, yeah, you're going to go to church. Yeah, you're going to help the, the needy and the oppressed. You're going you're gonna to do those things if you love me because I love those things. But when you get it twisted, when you get it backwards, where, where all, all the, like, going through the motions and, yeah, I go to church, and, yeah, I, I got to pray, and I got to read my Bible because pastor says I have to, right? I'm not going to feel good about myself if I don't read my Bible. All that is getting it backwards. It's getting it backwards. The, um, the picture that we have here of God is one that desperately wants us home. And some of us are running. Some of us are passionately running. Some of us have drifted. You know, affairs a lot of time, they, 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 they don't show up in the, um, in the devotion of the heart leaving like because you can't see that. You, you start to see little things change about the marriage and the relationship and things like that. And, um, and, but that is all a sign. It's all, it all points back to the fact that the devotion waned and the love and the romance waned, the intimacy waned. Because what you see here is that, um, yeah, verse, chapter 4, verse 6, it says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. And it's not just I know God, right? Like I know who he is and I'm acquainted with him and I could point him out to you in a lineup. No, because this word refers to the deepest intimacy that married people enjoy together. The deepest intimacy. Not just I know who he is or what he does or kind of he's in the Bible. I know, I know that I read the Bible. So yeah, I know God. No, you don't know God intimately until you pursue him passionately. And that's what he's after today. Let us stop running to things that'll satisfy us. In a sense, let us stop prostituting ourselves to, to gain things that can't give us satisfaction or contentment. There is one person and one thing on this whole planet that can offer that kind of contentment, and it is God and God alone. And anything else, you're going to end up in the gutter. You're going to end up wondering why you're not content. You're going to end up, and, and listen, you know what's crazy about it? 
he's still going to be there because that's in his nature. He loves us. So if you're in here and you're thinking, man, you don't know what I've done. You have no clue. Here's what I would say. The picture of the Bible is that he is pursuing someone who is unfaithful to him, who chooses day in and day out to be unfaithful, and he pursues that person. No one on this planet is outside the reach of God's love. No one in this room has done anything so bad that a repentant heart moving towards God in love and passion for him, not his stuff, but for him, God wants that today. There's no one in here beyond that. If you're in here and you're thinking, man, I I don't even know what a relationship with God feels like anymore. It's just blah. It's just gray. There's no color. There's no vibrance. I would invite you to get on your knees and to ask for forgiveness for maybe the things that have pushed you away from him, for entertaining the things on this planet that have promised promised contentment, and satisfaction, and that they couldn't deliver, I would ask you maybe to consider digging in the Word of God this week. Not out of duty, but out of love, out of getting to know Jesus. My people perish. They're destroyed for the lack of knowledge. Let it not be this generation that puts other things ahead of our relationship with God, our devotion to God, our full devotion passionate intimacy with God. That's what he wants. He doesn't want you to just go through the motions and pray for you.